Hello, and welcome to the Health in Europe podcast. I'm your host, Greg Bianchi. We've launched this podcast to bring you the latest on WHO's work in the European region. Our region is broad and diverse. From the mid-Atlantic and stretching as far as the Chinese border, we work with fascinating and driven individuals and groups. This podcast is about hearing their stories and how they might impact your day-to-day life. Behavioural and cultural insights utilise social sciences to help tackle ongoing health issues. From vaccine uptake to antimicrobial resistance to obesity and other non-communicable diseases. In this conversation, Banu Vatnaga, Press and Media Relations Officer at WHO Europe, spoke with Dr. Saad Omar, Director of the Yale Institute for Global Health, during a Twitter Spaces event to find out more about why behavioural and cultural insights matter to public health. Today we really have the pleasure to talk about behavioural and cultural insights with uh, an expert who, who is visiting, uh, visiting Denmark and visiting WHO Europe. And that's because this is a really important space and a growing uh, space uh, of inquiry when it comes to public health uh, interventions, using evidence and methods from behavioural and social sciences to help combat uh, health challenges, ranging from uh, vaccine uptake to antimicrobial resistance uh, to non-communicable disease factors like uh, obesity or, or tobacco use. So as I said, I'm joined by Professor Dr. Saad Omer, who is the director of the Yale Institute for Global Health. Uh, Professor Omer has a remarkable track record of epidemiological studies, clinical trials, and behavioral insight work across the world. And today he will be talking about this work uh, and also maybe looking into his uh, crystal ball of public health uh, to, to maybe look forward to some of the ways we can apply this uh, work to future health challenges. So uh, without further ado, uh, Professor Omar, I'd like to ask you to tell us a little bit as an ep- epidemiologist, how you came to see the value or usefulness uh, of behavioral and cultural insights uh, specifically uh, related to to public health? Well, it started relatively earlier in my career um, and, and even during my training where I recognized the, the, the limitation of purely biological or clinical interventions. Uh, for example, vaccine acceptance um, is, is an important aspect of protecting people against uh, vaccine-preventable diseases. So, so my journey started, you know, starting with vaccine work, um, and vaccine acceptance work. I continue to do other conventional uh, epidemiological and clinical trial and, uh, and that sort of work. But uh, my, a third of my portfolio over 20 years has focused on the behavioral aspects of um, immunization and then expanding into other health um, areas and, and behavioral, ac- uh, uh, behavioral aspects of other health behaviors. So tell us a little bit more about some of the recent experiences you have of uh, applying BCI, and I'm going to start saying BCI now, so it's a, it's a long expression, but for our listeners, behavioral and cultural insights, BCI. How about some of your experiences of applying this uh, during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic? And, you know, what does behavioral science tell us uh, about effective ways to kind of encourage uptake of public health measures, for example, the role of communication and in, in, in increasing vaccine uptake as well? So communication is one part of the kinds of interventions 
uh, we could have had and, and we did have uh, as, as a global public health community. So, for example, we started with looking at trust in public health authorities. We did the first uh, national survey in the U.S. on February 8th, 2020. Uh, where uh, we looked at what were the most trustworthy sources um, and uh, which agencies should be in charge, as an example, and people's perception of this emerging novel coronavirus. At that time, it wasn't even called COVID. From there, we uh, continued to look at uh, potential vaccine acceptance. And by May, we showed that uh, you had a, um, a situation where those who were asking for vaccines were asking very vociferously and then masked an underlying lukewarm attitude or some skepticism of vaccines in a, in a pretty sizable group of people. And so we showed that in May, uh, in our day, work done in, uh, in May 2020, that the vaccines will not be universally um, accepted. And so at that time, it was a pretty controversial thing to say, but um, unfortunately, we, we turned out to be prescient there. We then ran a series of experiments, uh, online experiments around messaging, on, on, uh, around what would be the optimal time of vaccine authorization or what time that the, uh, the associated with vaccine authorization on its natural course um, would be associated with the highest level of trust. Uh, we also did work other than vaccines. For example, we showed from the U.S. data, that pandemic uh, shelter-in-place uh, interventions or lockdowns did re reduce um, people's mobility and, and increase stay-at-home time using a, a, a sample of uh, nationwide cell phone data, anonymized cell phone data. We showed that, but also there was a contribution of voluntary response. In fact, people would have and were modifying their behavior irrespective of uh, shutdowns. Uh, but the difference was that if uh, those counties that imposed these shutdowns in the early part of the pandemic, that's not applicable to the later part of the pandemic, in the very early part of the pandemic, when they um, imposed these um, measures, they did that to save the same, uh, uh, you know, they, they had an impact on mobility um, as the, at the same level as approximately 20 deaths uh, in the same county. So people would have modified their behavior or were modifying their behavior anyways, but often, if you didn't impose uh, shelter in place, that would have happened anyways in the in the context of their um, you know mortality in their communities and so on and so forth. We were uh, one of the initial groups to show that pandemic fatigue is real, and we objectively measured that. Uh, we also looked at uh, behavior in outbreaks, and with a lot of collaborators within Yale, uh, uh, our, our colleagues in the School of Engineering, etc. One of the impetuses of uh, looking at wastewater surveillance uh, of the virus was that uh, otherwise you're relying on human behavior of actually going to the uh, healthcare facility, even mild and moderate cases, uh, even before hospitalizations start rising. And you wanted a way to predict when these uh, increases were happening. So we were, were actually the first group not to identify RNA uh, in, in the sewage. There was another group that did almost about the same time. Um, but we were the first group uh, collectively to show that um, the increase in viral RNA in sewage, in wastewater, is associated with increase, subsequent increase in cases. And you can get uh, a four to eight day lead time depending on what outcome you were looking for. And so there, there were these whole host of things that we paid attention to, and then we leverage 
behavioral and cultural insights for um, that that you know ended up coming up uh, with 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 evidence to inform policy and practice during the pandemic. Fascinating, um, and I think you you sort of touched on something that maybe we'll we'll return to this this idea that uh, you know there was this sort of baseline level where where people uh, you know were open to sort of non pharmaceutical interventions, and then there was a quick sort of drop, so to speak, and you call it pandemic uh, fatigue, and probably something to bear in mind for future uh, uh, health interventions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, we often uh, surprisingly assume that people will have a static response to public health interventions, which has never been the case, uh, even outside the pandemic. And so learning from our current experience, figuring out what are, what is the, the, the threshold at which people uh, stop complying with, with the recommendation guidance and sometimes uh, uh, regulation uh, as well in, in certain cases uh, will serve us well uh, for future public health emergencies. Uh, exactly. And that, that takes me neatly to sort of my next point, because, you know, we talk a lot about communication in, in the behavioral and cultural insight space. But as you've already uh, alluded to, you know, there's so much more uh, that or so many more areas where it can be applied, namely uh, health services, making them more accessible and convenient and certainly uh, for introducing new health policies. So I'm going to talk about a slightly potentially sensitive issue, which is the uh, the concept of vaccination mandates, which of course was a huge topic um, throughout uh, 2020 and even 2021. Um, so considering your many years of research in this space, what are your kind of takeaways regarding the idea of vaccination mandates? So again, so there's a huge misconception around vaccine mandates. Uh, and I've been working on mandates well before the pandemic for approximately 20 years on, on that topic. Look, vaccine mandates come in various uh, shapes and sizes. Most mandates are not uh, draconian, or a lot of mandates are not draconian. And in fact, in most cases, health authorities are not picking up people and taking them to vaccination centers. And that's the initial image that a lot of people think, or they're putting people in prison or uh, all of that stuff. Uh, the way these mandates work is to take a privilege away. Even that can, be, uh, can have a range of strictness. Um, and what we have found in summary is if the mandates are too easy, and, and so all mandates or, or a lot of these mandates come with exemptions, uh, but you have to go through some procedures to, to get an exception from those mandates. So, so it turns out if they are too easy to opt out of, they lose their effectiveness or their effectiveness has declined substantially. But on the other hand, if they're too strict or too punitive, Either there's a backlash or people find other ways of um, avoiding them, and that's a reality. So the way to deal with mandates is, first of all, this a mandate should never be a way for a society or a majority of a society to vent their frustrations at a, at a group of people. It's, it's, it's not the avenue for that. And the way uh, mandates work, if they are employed, is not as a frontline intervention. And they should only be employed judiciously and, and when there is all other or many of the other voluntary methods are exhausted. And in conjunction with those methods, when the supply is assured, when the equity issues are not, if not completely resolved, but, but have been substantially and substantively addressed. Even after that, mandates should 
be informed by behavioral insights and cultural insights. And what I mean by that is they should work with the balance of convenience. So it should be more convenient to get vaccinated than not vaccinated. And the, how you deal with that balance of convenience should also be in line with vaccine preventable diseases or infectious disease prevention interventions. I'll give you an ex- a, a, a specific example. In a lot of pa- places, a lot of workplaces in many parts of the world and in, in a lot of universities, etc., uh, vaccines were mandated. And it's there's evidence that they, uh, that actually reduced both infection and, and other adverse outcomes in really crowded settings like that. However, the more effective ones of those mandates were the ones where the penalty, where there was an exemption, some kind of an exemption, and the penalty for not getting vaccinated was additional testing, especially before the, you know, before the, the virus uh, rates became a little bit more moderated, when, when there were these sort of right. rampant outbreaks, etc. Yeah. So that balance of convenience uh, ensured both a higher level of compliance with the mandate but also a higher level of vaccination rates. But I mean, it's very interesting. And I think before we came to air, actually, you you, you said something that um, that I, I wanted to also share with our listeners. You, you said that, you know, this is all about values and value systems and that values are kind of like taste buds, that we all have them, but, uh, you know, respond differently to different levels of, of flavor and, and spice. Um, and that we don't really need to change people's values, but actually speak to them. So how does one speak to people's values? That's a really good question. So the framework we use, and some of our sort of original work has focused on um, people's values and how do you uh, sort of you know, align your messaging with their values, uh, and, and it's based on actually a theoretical, theoretical framework uh, that a few social psychologists, uh, and some of them are our collaborators, uh, evolve. Uh, and the one that I particularly like is the moral foundation uh, foundations theory, which postulates that all of us have six moral taste buds, if you will, but they are triggered uh, differentially in response to different kinds of stimuli, but also people and cultures have underlying emphasis, which varies from population to population. Uh, For example, we showed before the pandemic that some of the vaccine decisions are moral decisions or values-based decisions, and people who emphasize authority in all aspects of lives are more pr- uh, prone to trusting vaccines or, or getting their children vaccinated. On the other hand, people who emphasize purity a- a- as well as liberty as a baseline, not everyone, but as a baseline, are less gung-ho about vaccines. So the way we have addressed this, for example, in randomized experiments, we have uh, looked, messaged around people's emphasis on purity uh, in the context of HPV vaccine, and, and these experiments have shown that if you do that, at least for some values, you can move people's attitudes and, and intended behavior. So, so the, as I said, that it's not our place to try to change people's values, and, and I don't, I'm not sure if we have the ability to do so, but it is um, in our interest and the public health interest to try to speak to people's values. Absolutely. But this, now, this brings me to the the next point then, because, you know, there's one thing generating all this really fascinating insight from, from behavioral and cultural uh, inquiry or, or, or investigation. But 
it's only really beneficial, right, if policy and decision makers actually make use of it. So can you give me some examples of your, from your own experience, your own career, uh, about how this kind of insight is received by the people who need to make decisions with it? So health authorities and how is some of the research translated into action? That's a really good question. For example, in terms of our more nuanced work on vaccine mandates, treating them as behavioral interventions implemented through legislation that has informed policy in multiple states in the U.S. and in a, in a few countries. So that's one example. The other one that uh, that was an example of us, uh, a couple of us, uh, did some advocacy and, and wrote an op-ed around uh, the need for WHO Geneva to have a behavioral insights unit, highlighting that in 2019, at the beginning of 2019, at least nine out of 10 uh, major public health threats uh, threats, uh, that WHO highlighted had behavioral dimensions. So we sort of penned an op-ed and did some advocacy around it. And thankfully, internally at WHO, a few colleagues were doing, saying the same thing. Um, and and the DG, WHO Director General, uh, sort of contacted us to say that, yes, he wants to move on that and then internally directed uh, the staff to start planning for this. And, and fortunately, WHO Geneva moved on this and there is uh, a behavioral insights, uh, behavioral and cultural work is happening around this uh, behavioral insights uh, setup. Uh, and, and that was very gratifying to see. At the same time, since my colleague Rob Butler um, sort of in, engaged with and continue to be engaged with WHO Europe, this Behavioral and Cultural Insights unit was established at WHO Europe and has been a pioneer in some of uh, country-level work and working with them and coming up with normative guidance and evaluation and interventions and all of that stuff. So, so obviously no one person or no one group is responsible for moving the needle, but it is gratifying to see that uh, having one of the voices among many has helped move the needle. Uh, right. and, and, and so, so, so it is helpful uh, to now say, what, where do we go next from there? Because God knows there's more to be done. There is more to be done. Very, very uh, quickly, if I may, uh, what about in your own sort of patch? I know you're based in the U.S. and you have in various roles and, and uh, incarnations have done lots of work with different aspects of the sort of the U.S. health uh, infrastructure as well as uh, government. So have you seen a change in the way the U.S. authorities uh, receive these kinds of insights over the course of this pandemic? Well, yes and no. You know, everyone around the world in, in public health and broadly government uh, entities in, involved with this pandemic, I have been running uh, this, uh, you know, running a marathon at at sprint speeds. So, yeah, you know, uh, you know, people haven't had a chance to catch their breath. Having said that, a few years ago, uh, a unit was established in the U.S. the White House Social and Behavioral Sciences team that eventually became uh, the Office of Evaluation Sciences. I, I had. Uh, you know uh, the the privilege of be working on a on a few projects with them as an academic affiliate, and and they continue to have played a role in incorporating some of these insights in at least federal government programming. Having said that, I think there are lots more to be done, especially at the country level, in two aspects. So there was this resolution in Europe. There was some push towards that more globally as well, and but these commitments are 
essential and necessary but not sufficient. So countries need to commit to this, but also then put real resources behind them. Uh, we are in a good place uh, as a start, as 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 a as a global public health community that has beginnings and that has started to recognize it, but we have a long way to go. Thinking a little bit about the future, I told people you'd get your crystal ball out. So uh, what do you think kind of are some of the promising or even some of the get big gaps uh, for the application of BCI in, in public health? Where, where do you think we're going to need to apply it in the years ahead? So look, there are a lot of challenges that are obvious targets for these kinds of interventions, uh, behavior around non-communicable diseases, in, in, uh, antimicrobial resistance uh, is is an obvious place where behavioral and cultural insights can play a huge role. However, there I would sort of single out a few things that are, are major, major challenges where we need BCI um, at the forefront. For example, we as a species are entirely unprepared for the health impact of global climate change. And there are a lot of behavioral and cultural insights that come into play uh, when we are responding to them. Uh, so you know, the kind of present bias, for example, where communities don't act, or a fear-induced paralysis. Uh, and a lot of these things require not just insights to understand the issues, but also to respond to it. Uh, the other thing is um, a lot of, we will start seeing AI-based data used in digital technologies, but there's a huge inequity in the corpus of data on which these models will be trained. And that would Unlike, uh, would, would, unlikely to manifest as uh, things that are not astute in terms of behavioral and cultural insights for large portions of the world. So that's a, that's a threat that we need to preempt. And the last thing is, I'm of the belief that we need to continue to focus on not just pandemic preparedness, but primary, primary prevention of uh, pandemics. And, and for example... We need cultural insights to, to understand and to uh, address issues of bushmeat consumption uh, in, in West Africa. Uh, that poses a, a threat to pandemic, um, uh, you know, zoonotic transmission of diseases uh, or wet market trade uh, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and these are just a few examples. Going forward, we need to do a few things. We need to, again, have political commitment and put resources behind it. But we also need to mainstream it. There is such a gap in the vocabulary around behavioral and cultural insights in our major professions that take care of our health, both medical and public health professions. And one thing um, I want to see is these kinds of competencies become part of the basic credentialing of health and public health professionals. And so, so these are you know, several con concrete ideas that will take us from where we are right now, which is there's a lot of uh, initial momentum, there is increasing acceptance uh, and incorporation of behavioral and cultural insights, but we need to go beyond uh, what we have now and really match the moment vis-a-vis -vis challenges that, that are um, coming our way. Absolutely. That was um, extremely, extremely interesting and uh, in a way almost raises more questions. But I guess we're asking the right questions if we if we get to more questions uh, after that. This is actually in line with the new resolution on behavioral and cultural insights for health, which was adopted by the member states of the European region back in September of last year. Uh, and with this resolution, the countries have made a commitment to invest both funding and people 
uh, in BCI research and uh, implementation. Uh, Dr. Omer, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this is such a rich area of work and with demonstrated potential to really improve health outcomes across the region and uh, indeed the world. Thank you. It's and my pleasure to join everyone from this, at the same time, snowy and sunny Copenhagen. Yes, yes. All, all seasons in one day, exactly. Uh, a lot more information is, of course, available on the WHO Europe website uh, and also on the online BCI Hub, which you can find at bci-hub.org. That's all we have time for. Special thanks to Banu and Saad for their conversation. If you'd like to find out more about behavioural and cultural insights, you can do so on the WHO Europe website. That's who.int forward slash Europe or via the links in the show notes. Thanks for listening and until next time, stay safe and stay healthy.